Welcome to 2022, fellow album divers. We are so excited to jump into our deep dive of Sam Cooke's famous live album. But before we do, I wanted to take a moment to let Brandon introduce you to an amazing Bay Area band that you've got to check out. Hey, I'm Brandon, one half of the synthwave duo Overgrown. Overgrown combines 80s nostalgia with modern electronic music production. We formed in 2019 and have put out two EPs, which you can hear on all of your favorite streaming services. This year, we're planning to release a series of new singles and play across California. Thanks for listening and hope to see you at a show soon. to the show. Welcome to Album Divers. This is a podcast created by two music lovers who still remember listening to albums from start to finish the way the artists intended. We give history, track-by-track track analysis, and delve into the music lyrics of some of the best albums of the past and today. Thanks for joining us. Let's dive in. Welcome to Album Divers. I'm Trevor. And I'm Shane. On this podcast, we take turns choosing albums to discuss and review. We alternate between an album that was released this calendar year and one that's been around a while. All right, Trevor, what do you got for us today? All right, we're going back as far as we've gone back. This is an album from 1963, but it wasn't released until 1985. This is Sam Cooke, One Night Stand, live at the Harlem Square Club. Give you some of that money too But listen, oh, that ain't all That ain't all Sam will do for you All you gotta do is bring it to me Bring that good mother, baby Bring it all home to me I gotta take this cause this is important Listen to me Don't you know that I'll always I'll always be your slave <laughs> Till I'm Oh man, I'm, I'm really glad you picked this album. One, because it's a live album and I always like live music. There's something cool about hearing the audience and, and trying to put yourself in that crowd and visualize what the artist was like up on stage as they were performing. This live album is another way to dissect an artist and, and get a feel for who they are and, and what they're trying to do with their music. And, and Sam Cooke is a great artist for us to to pick a live album to 
discuss and review because not only does it showcase his talents, it also has a lot of contrast between the, the music that was put out in his studio works, in large part because of the time and the influence of, of, of the record label, uh, his producers and managers and people that were trying to mold his sound to appeal to the masses that, that made what we're most familiar with uh, when we think of Sam Cooke maybe slightly different from the raw, unfiltered, you know, full-bodied soul version of Sam Cooke that we experience on this live album. And that's probably uh, the main reason why this was shelved for 22 years, because they didn't want to damage that image uh, to some degree. That's exactly why this album got shelved. And that's exactly why I feel like this album deserves a place on our podcast to discuss. I did feel like it was a little bit like cheating, picking a live album. There's something about our mission that I felt like lended itself to a studio album. We talked about the value of analyzing how tracks are ordered and all the things that might go into a very well-constructed album that I just kind of always felt like a live album didn't really hit on all those elements. But this is an exception to me, and, and there are other albums I think that could be an exception to that. I think they're few and far between, but this is a really special one because I don't think you get a full picture of who Sam Cooke is without listening to this album. If we're looking at the artist Sam Cooke, who clearly deserves a place in our podcast one form or another, I almost think this live album by him is the right entry point to somebody discovering Sam Cooke and understanding who he is. Yeah, I mean, definitely that that's very well said. I'm sure everybody out there has heard at least one Sam Cooke song, if not many in their lifetime, whether they knew it was him or not. And he had 29 singles that made the top 40 chart over his eight-year solo career. So, I mean, he was just putting out music at an incredible pace, had so many hits that have really stood the test of time. And I think you're spot on with saying that this live album is a great entry point because although it's technically his last album that was ever released, I think it was released 20 years after his last studio album, it probably is a great place to start because it's the raw, stripped down, uh, unpolished version of Sam where he's able to improvise and and be himself and play with the crowd and really showcase his ability to, to perform and entertain people. Although you see that in the, the studio albums, it's a little more catered to a certain brand of listener, and, and maybe it's not 100% uh, Sam the way he maybe would have portrayed himself through all of his music. Although I believe even though Sam was persuaded by a lot of the people that were behind the scenes in his music, I think he had a fair amount of power in the studio to create the music close to the way he wanted to. And uh, from you know what I've read and some of the documentaries that I've seen and what people have said about him, he wasn't one to roll over at the request of, of uh, somebody asking him to do something that he didn't agree with. He didn't, didn't really come off as that kind of person. He was groundbreaking, influential kind of person who, who didn't mind defying the norms and, and uh, standing up for doing things his way. So Although he was probably encouraged to to sound a certain way or, or um, make music that appealed to the masses for the for the the sake of success and the business side of things, I I think his studio albums showcase who he is as a, a person as well and as as a musical performer. 
But again, there's just no way you can showcase all of his talents in a studio album the way this live album does. So definitely a good starting point. Yeah, I think you're right about that. I think he's got multiple parts of who he is. I don't think that the record labels version of him was necessarily silencing him as much as it was just narrowing him sort of it was putting him in a small box that was an authentic portrait of who he was but it just wasn't the whole picture and I think that you're right about him being a businessman that was part of his goal too I think he knew what he was doing as well I don't think that he was taking orders from others to try to calm his voice down or make it more radio friendly I think that was important to him too I think he was playing the game I think he knew what he was doing from a commercial standpoint and glad to do it. This is a broader perspective and look at a part of Sam Cooke that we didn't get to see that wouldn't have been seen at that time. Sam kind of knew what he was doing from the business uh, side of things. He loved making music. He loved performing and and, uh, he enjoyed the spotlight and the stage and and, uh, interacting with people. But I also think he knew that this was his access to break down some of those barriers in the community uh, obviously during the, the 60s and the civil rights movement and segregation, there were still a lot of cultural barriers that didn't allow people to see eye to eye, come together and, and connect and see each other as human beings and equals. And for Sam, music was his way of kind of getting his foot into the door, getting across to the other side and enter into another world of people where if he could gain their trust and show them that he's just a normal human being like them that he's he's more than his his uh his musical talents and uh his his ability to perform and entertain them that you know maybe through that he can form some genuine connections with people break down some of those barriers and then allow that to be a stepping stone for other people and I think he had a, a bigger mission that, unfortunately, we, we we probably never got to see play out to its full potential. But I think music was only the start for him, and he had he had bigger plans. He had bigger dreams of helping to be uh, part of that change that that he knew the world needed um, to see back then. You know, joining the likes of Muhammad Ali, uh, Malcolm X, Jim Jim Brown. You know, there was the love of music, but there was also a lot more than that. And I think that's why he knew that he needed to not necessarily cater to these people, but he needed to work with them and he needed to make sure that they were coming together and they were producing something that everybody would enjoy in terms of the quality of the product so that it didn't divide people even more, but that it brought them together. That's a good way to describe his stance on his career and what he was trying to accomplish. All right, well, let's back up a few steps and talk about Sam's upbringing and uh, what got him to his fame and fortune as a a musician. Sure. So Sam Cooke was born in Clarksdale, Mississippi in 1931. At the time, Sam spelled his name C-O-O-K without the letter E, and he wouldn't add the letter E to the end of his name until decades later when he ventured into pop music. He was the fifth of eight children, born to Reverend Charles Cook and Mother Annie May in the segregated Mississippi. To seek a new life for his family, the Reverend Papa Cook moved his family to Chicago just a couple of years after Sam's birth, where he would later attend the same elementary school that Nat King Cole attended just a few years later. 
Sam's first singing experience began early at just age six, singing gospel music with his siblings in a group simply called the Singing Children. As a teenager, he sang lead with a gospel group in the area called the Highway QCs, which with a rotating cast of members is still in existence today, 70 years later. It was during this time that Sam Cooke befriended neighbor and fellow gospel singer Lou Rawls. Oh yeah, that's right. They were friends early in their life too. Lou Rawls is the guy that does backup vocals on uh, Bring It On Home to Me. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, he's cool. the guy that does I didn't read the that echoes, the, the yaz. In 1950, at just 18 years old, Cook replaced renowned tenor R.H. Harris as lead singer of the gospel group, and I love this name, The Soul Stirrers. To paint the picture of how well thought of Sam Cook was as just a teenager, R.H. Harris himself was later inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 1989. Yeah, some people were kind of not sure whether or not this 19-year-old would be able to step in and fill the shoes of that guy, but he quickly squashed any any doubt that people might have had no doubt and he had his own way of doing it during sam cook's time with the soul stirrers they recorded several hits and cook's smooth tenor voice and good looks are credited with bringing gospel music to a younger crowd particularly young girls who would rush to the front of the stage to be closer to him let's just say church attendance was a little bit higher when the soul stirrers and <laughs> sam cook were performing during that time in 1953, he married his first wife, Dolores, who was a singer and dancer. When he first branched from gospel into the pop and soul scene, he released his first single called Lovable in 1956 under the name Dale Cook, spelled without the E, to test the waters and not to alienate his gospel fans as it was viewed the devil's music. And if you ventured into that side of it, away from gospel music, you really weren't welcomed back in, so Sam felt like he had one shot to succeed in this. Otherwise, he'd probably be done singing for good. So he decided to dis- disguise himself as Dale Cook, just in case things didn't go the way he wanted and he could come back to singing gospel. And in fact, the song Lovable was really a reworking of a gospel song called Wonderful that Sam would have sang at the time with the Soul Stirrers. So in a way, it was almost double blasphemy. Yeah, they talked about that on the Netflix docu-series Remastered. There was an episode, well, it's basically a full-length documentary. It was an hour and some change titled The Two Killings of Sam Cooke. Yeah, that was a great documentary. There was definitely uh, a stigma back in those times that gospel singers wouldn't do any type of secular music where they're singing about relationships or or even anything other than topics that you would typically sing about in in church and in in uh, gospel choir type music so he was kind of going into uncharted territory by yeah by taking that leap of faith and, and doing something that was kind of against the the grain at the time but clearly everybody knew it was him his voice is so recognizable nobody kind of fell for this dale cook uh, exactly. <laughs> thing. Yeah. So yeah. His, everybody knew it was him and his, his cover him, was no blown immediately. <laughs> well, to paint the picture from a timeline standpoint, just of when this would have been in history, this is several years before artists like Smokey Robinson or Diana Ross or Marvin Gaye and you know, Stevie Wonder, all of these artists would make their way into the record collection of suburban households You know, before Motown was getting tread and moving. So with Sam or 
Dale, we should say, releasing music in 1956, it's worth noting that the first black artist to reach the Billboard 100 was Tommy Edwards a year later in 1958. So Sam was really in uncharted waters, as you said, as a black pop artist at the time. Despite the stigma of crossing over, it was actually his father and pastor, Reverend Charles Cook, who eventually, though he wasn't an advocate of it to begin with, gave his son his blessing. Sam was quoted as saying, My father told me God gave me a voice and musical talent, and the true use of his gift was to share it and make people happy. It was at this time that Sam officially began recording on his own as Sam Cook, adding the E for a little extra flair. You said something there a minute ago that was kind of an epiphany moment for me. Maybe it's something that's already known by many, but when you when you said that he was one of the first black singers to be making pop music, I thought to myself, well, you know, he's often referred to as the, the king of soul. I mean, his songs did have some, some pop elements, uh, obviously, but I just got to thinking soul music is kind of a blend of, of gospel and pop in a way. Right. I can't think of anybody as big as Sam or as influential in in that uh, space from the the black community. There's not a lot that started before him. I know Little Richard was right in there, I think slightly before him making some music and somebody that Sam Cooke was looking to during that time. But I mean, all of this stuff was moving at that exact same moment. There really wasn't much other precedence for this. And, you know, even Motown which came after the seeds of that were growing at the exact same time that Sam Cooke was starting to put these things together. So it, it was all happening all at once, and, and Sam was right there at the cutting edge of this. Mm-hmm. No question about it. Yeah, you, you mentioned some other artists earlier, too, so maybe, maybe I'll overlap here on this list, but I, I found it pretty, pretty fascinating that Sam inspired so many other really popular soul singers, including Aretha Franklin, Bobby Womack, Al Green... Curtis Mayfield, Stevie Wonder, Marvin Gaye, uh, Otis Redding, and James Brown, um, to name just a few. So, oh yeah, you know we usually talk about the artists that inspired or influenced the artists that we're reviewing on our podcast, but you know we'd have to go pretty far back for who might have been the inspiration to to Sam. I mean, he w- he was getting started at such an early age. Obviously, he was inspired by the church and the gospel music but as far as there being a well-known name or artist out there that you know he looked up to that influenced him i i'm not i'm not really sure maybe we could do some digging and and find some but you know he's kind of he's kind of the guy that everybody else was influenced by and he's sort of the 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 groundbreaking guy that that um you know paved his own way you know kind of kind of by himself I think you're kind of right about that, and I, I think anybody else that he was inspired by, like I said, was almost moving at the same current as sure, he yeah. was. It, it almost becomes arbitrary who ends up first here. You know, I'm talking about um, Sam Cooke releasing music just right ahead of Motown, but it was kind of just because that fell into place first. It, it wasn't like Sam Cooke was creating music and Motown started paying attention and then they did it. You know, I mean, it was really just... Right, yeah all of these artists just moving at at the beginning of this crest of this wave. And um, mm-hmm. he happened to come in just ahead of some of those other ones. So I think his influences were people like Piers. Um, we mentioned Lou Rawls earlier on that he grew up with and, and just some of these other artists in the gospel scene that may have ventured off eventually. You mentioned Aretha Franklin. She came up in that scene as well, starting off in the gospel scene. I think her dad was also a preacher, if I'm not mistaken. So, But the hits just kept coming for 
Sam Cooke after making the decision to go into the pop direction. And between 1957 and 1964, he had 30 top 40 hits, including You Send Me, Cupid, Twistin' the Night Away, Chain Gang. Some of these will be ones that we talk about in this live album. A Change is Gonna Come, one of the most beautiful songs ever written regarding civil rights. Another Saturday Night, just to name a few among many, many others. With the exception of Elvis Presley, he was the most successful artist in the late 50s and early 60s. Cook was one of the first black entertainers, along with Ray Charles, to take the business side of his career into his own hands. He founded both a record label and publishing company. As we've mentioned already, he was also heavily involved in the civil rights movement, albeit in a less obvious fashion than other activists that would come after him. While on the road touring, Sam refused to sing in segregated audience by either canceling shows that were segregated, or in one instance at least, chose to turn and only face the segregated black audience members as he felt they couldn't tell him which direction to sing. Jesse Belvin was the first black singer to do an integrated and also segregated concert. That's right. They described in the documentary how the black people were on stage level on the floor, which ironically is, is where I would rather be. <laughs> yeah. But Sounds uh, like way more fun down there. <laughs> right. Yeah. It co- it I always go for that. As much to, yeah. Uh, yeah. That's what I was going to ask if you, if you yeah. remember seeing on there. Yeah. It said yeah. whites, a dollar fifty, and then general admission, two seventy five or something like that. It was almost double. Yeah. Sam, Sam read between the lines and said, you know what? This is, this is bogus. I'm not going to, I'm not going to be a part of this. This is not how I want my audience uh, to be. If, if we're going to have, an integrated show, everybody's going to be intermixed and mingling and having a good time together. We're not going to separate them. So by protesting that and, uh, you know, boycotting, not showing up for some of these shows, you know, he, he really was going against the popular opinion at the time, even amongst uh, his community, amongst the, the other, the black artists. If there was a, a show where lots of performers uh, were, were, were going to be, you know, on stage, he oftentimes he was the only one uh, to say, hey, I'm, I'm not doing it. You know, I, they, they referenced that in the, the movie that everybody had said, hey, yeah, we're, we're with you. Let's boycott the show. And then when it actually came down to it, he was the only one still left at the hotel and everybody had taken off to go, you know, do their part and fulfill their obligation and, and go do the performance. I, I assume they had to do that if they wanted to get paid. And, you know, so it, it was a leap of faith and uh, not something that he got a ton of support from to to stand up and do that well yeah and i mean you mentioned jesse belvin and it's one thing to be brave and stand up for something that you believe in but the end of that story is that jesse belvin was murdered after that show he was he died in a head-on collision which at first they thought was an accident but in retrospect looked like it was intentional yeah some somebody had tampered with his car or something i didn't, didn't quite get the whole story yeah on that. like yeah maybe. i think that's what it was yeah mm-hmm so it's it's one thing to stand up for something you believe in. It's another to know that you may be risking your life or yeah, your livelihood exactly. in doing it. So, And near the end of his life, Sam would venture into songs with deeper messages about some of these things in civil rights, including covering Bob Dylan's song, Blowing in the Wind, and doing it his own way. That was amazing. No, the answer, my friend, is blowing in the wind. The answer, blowing in the and his course most famous and beautiful song that i referenced earlier a a change is going to come which i learned from researching for this episode that 
even that had a verse that was removed by his record company that they feared it was a little bit too direct for white oh, audiences, really? talking a bit more about specific experiences that hmm, a black person might have during this time. And you mentioned this earlier, but he would befriend Malcolm X and Muhammad Ali, as well as other African-American activists, as he continued to pursue his own career goals and become more determined to be a voice for autonomy and entrepreneurship for a successful black man in the 50s and 60s. Yeah, I, I couldn't believe Muhammad Ali brought him up into the ring after he won a big fight. I don't, I don't know if that was yeah. for the title or, or something, but he brought him up and, you know, I mean, you know how charismatic and and boisterous uh, Muhammad Ali was. I think he was actually Cassius Clay still at the time when, when that uh, footage was I from that fight right. that I Sam went up. Right. But, you know, Muhammad always used to say, I am the greatest, you know. <laughs> but mm-hmm. you can you can hear him in this video clip on the documentary and he's saying, Sam Cook is the greatest. Sam is the greatest. This is Sam Cook. As you can see, like me, he's awful pretty. <laughs> and we are here now working and on And we were record. talking again about just how dangerous this was. I wanted to mention, too, in 1959, at the height of his fame, Sam was one of the first black entertainers to be invited on the, the Dick Clark show. But threats from the Ku Klux Klan leading up to the taping led well-meaning Dick Clark to call for support from the National Guard, not realizing that oh, yeah, for a black right. man in the 50s, even the National Guard couldn't be trusted in their eyes for good reason. And so luckily, despite their presence on the day of Sam's taping, he insisted on showing up anyway, and he managed to avoid incident. But again, just doing his thing, being the talented independent black artist that he was, it wasn't just a theoretical assault on his character or who he was it was literally the threat of physical assault and and even death or bodily harm from being who he was and and being as talented as he was and he knew he he had he had to go he had to make a stand he, he couldn't back down um to the threats because he he knew that it was it was bigger than him it wasn't just for him it was you know uncharted territory for him to be getting invited to the show and that it was in a way, breaking barriers. So I think he knew it was worth the risk, you know, because yeah. because of what it, what he was standing up for. And, you know, going back to what we were saying about it being more than the music, he was willing to do w- whatever it took. And even if that meant, you know, ignoring some of these threats and, and taking a chance, pretty, yeah. ad- pretty admirable. Agreed. I'm glad that he was. I, th- I think he did rec- recognize that this was something bigger than him. Moving away from some of these bigger issues and and venturing back into his personal life, also during the height of his fame, he and Dolores, his first wife, would divorce in 1958, and she would unfortunately be killed in a car accident the very next year in 1959. Also in 1958, he married his second wife, Barbara Campbell. They had three children together. Linda, who was born out of wedlock in 1953, would also herself become a singer-songwriter. His daughter Tracy was born in 1960, for whom he'd name his independent record label Tracy Limited after, and his son Vincent, who would tragically drown in the family pool at just three years old. 
1961, he began his record label called Sar Records, and in 1963, he signed a five-year contract with record executive Alan Klein and made him his manager. Alan Klein immediately won Cook's trust. He was an aggressive and charismatic businessman who was skilled at getting major record labels to pay artists their fair share of profits. But remember his name, as Alan Klein is looked on historically in a different light. We will revisit Alan Klein later in the episode. On December 11, 1964, Cook was killed at just 33 years old. The circumstances surrounding his death are complicated and murky. And I know you and I have both been doing our own research and watched a couple documentaries about Sam and his death. I'd like to save that discussion for the end of our podcast. But speaking briefly about this album specifically, again, we are discussing today One Night Stand. It's a live album recorded at the Harlem Club in Miami in 1963. It's the first of two live albums recorded during Sam's career and stands in stark contrast to the second, which was recorded in the swanky white Copacabana Club in New York. This album is recorded on a warm January night in 1963 in front of a packed audience in the historically black neighborhood of Overton. Sam never got to hear this album's reception by the public as RCA Records shelved it for 20 plus years, not releasing it until 1985, deeming it too gritty and raw and potentially damaging his pop image. Or perhaps more accurately stated, they thought it might poison the image that was making them so much money at the time. Since its release, One Night Stand has garnered critical acclaim and opened the eyes of music lovers and historians to a side of Sam Cooke that many never saw, but that was just as present and pervasive throughout his career as the one that made its way into the radio with that silky tenor voice that everybody knows. Rolling Stone has listed this album as the 14th best live album of all time in their rankings in 2015. Backing Sam during this performance are his band, led by guitarist Clifton White, as well as seven other musicians, including famous session saxophonist King Curtis, guitarist Cornell Dupree, and drummer Albert June Gardner, just to name a few. On a personal note, I discovered Sam Cooke, like most people, hearing his sweet voice serenade me on a playlist featuring some other crooner-style singers. Cupid was a favorite song of mine in a karaoke bar or a mix CD for a girl I was interested in. <laughs> it was also one of the songs featured in my wedding, and Sam's commercial image will always be special to me. Oh, cool. I would even go as far as to say it feels genuine, like another extension of himself. But this is something altogether different on this album. This isn't an album in the traditional sense, or at least in the sense we have categorized an album in our music exploration thus far. The songs were written over different times in Sam's life. The order wasn't likely selected to convey a continuous narrative. But like the other albums that we've selected, the event and these songs coming together tell a story that couldn't be told in any other way, even if it's one that isn't revealed until decades after its recording. It's a story that shaped my image of Sam Cooke as an artist and instantly transports me to a place I could have never otherwise been. And for that reason, I think it more than fits the mold of our mission for this podcast. Should we get into the album? Yeah, let's do it. I'm excited for this one. Again, it's January 12th, 1963. We're in a packed, sweaty club in Miami. And this is One Night Stand by the King of Soul, Sam Cooke. Ladies and gentlemen, right now we'd like to get ready to introduce the star of our show. The young man you've all been waiting for, Mr. Soul. 
So what do you say, let's all get together and welcome him to the stand with a great big hand. How about it for Sam Cooke? How about it? How about it? So this first part is just a little introduction, but I think it really starts the tempo for this album as a whole. You hear the saxophone is featured on that intro, and I mentioned some of the artists up on stage with him. That's Curtis King. Curtis King also played with Aretha Franklin, and he's featured on her most famous song, Respect, among other songs of hers. He's a famous session musician, and he himself has an interesting story. He was maybe even more violently killed. He was stabbed to death at age 37 by some drug dealers outside of his apartment. But you hear him playing that saxophone in the lead-in, and you hear the crowd right away, and I think this really sets the mood for what this is going to feel like. Yeah, you can really feel the energy of the crowd and, and the excitement. He had a way of commanding the audience and, and really playing with them in, in a way that w- was a lot of fun. I think one of the telling things in this intro is he asks everybody how they're doing out there, but he doesn't accept their answer right away. Thank you, thank you very much. Before we do anything, we'd like to say to each how you doing out there? Is everybody doing all right? How you doing out there? I ask you one more time, how are you doing out there, all right? And then, of course, right from there, he's going into what will be the words of the next song in the show where he says, don't fight it, we're going to feel it. Yeah, and I almost, think that really sets the stage for what he's wanting yeah, to get out of this. Kind of like like a like an order or a request. Uh, I can't remember how he says it. Yeah, something like, yeah. All right now, all mm-hmm. right now, everybody. You know, listen up here. Um, here's what we're gonna do tonight. I don't I don't want you to fight it. You don't want to fight it. Just feel it. You know, feel it. We're gonna right, feel it tonight. Right. And then of course he rolls rolls right into his song. Uh, don't fight it. Feel it. Yeah, that, that is kind of the message of the entire album, the entire night, the show. You know, he's setting the stage early on. Um, you know, don't overthink this here. Just let the music move you and uh, just go with it. You know, feel it. That's right. And then right before that next song starts, you hear Sam say, OK, Cliff. And that is reference to Clifton White on guitar, who is Sam's traveling band leader. And from there, we move on into the first song. Don't fight it, feel it. Don't fight it. We're going to feel it. OK, Cliff. Don't fight it. Shit. He definitely makes you feel it. Makes you feel the the rhythm and the the beat of the music. You know, you can't you can't help but want to start singing along and dancing and moving and grooving. 
you know he's just got a way yeah. about you know the way he you know, sells the music you know you can tell that he feels it and uh you know he makes you feel it too and that's that's pretty special you know to um maybe look into this song a, a little bit a little bit deeper I, I i don't know it's probably not the intention of this song but i i just couldn't help but see maybe a a, a parallel or a, a, like a hidden uh, message to this song you know that's kind of what he wanted not only the the white community perhaps um but also you know his fellow gospel singers or anybody who might have might have challenged this this new sound or this new style of music that he was putting out there you know to not not fight it don't like you know be too critical and and shoot it down right away you know just just feel the music just go with it a little bit and uh kind of let your let your mind be open to to something different and just you know just just let the music speak to you try not to overthink it or do too much um to resist that feeling just just go with it and uh you know don't fight don't fight it yeah and i think that was such a perfect message to begin this show mm-hmm. And I was feeling like on this song and especially some of the ones coming up, but because this is the first time it came to mind, I think it's worth mentioning here. I felt like he was almost channeling his dad or a a preacher of the time. Just, I mean, his relationship with the crowd feels almost more like that. I mean, you you kind of half expect him to yell, can I get an amen every once in a while (laughs) during this show. Instead, he's saying stuff like, can I hear an oh yeah, and they say oh right, yeah, yeah in this song. But it, but it might as well be a religious yeah. experience, I feel like, to some of these people. He, he does he does have that that preacher tone to his voice that that's part of part of what I keep I keep saying he has this commanding presence about him it's not it's not super demanding but it's it's enough that really grabs people's attention so it's like he's got this message but then he'll go back into the song but he's he's kind of yeah. prepping these different verses like all right now if you haven't been listening to this point you better better pay attention right now just think things like that yeah it does kind of have that preacher um, feel to it. One of the things that I knew about Sam Cooke before hearing this album was that Rod Stewart was one of the musicians that was inspired by Sam Cooke and particularly Sam Cooke's voice. Rod Stewart really credits Sam Cooke's voice as an inspiration to his. When I heard that, my vision of Sam Cooke, the radio hits version, I just could not understand that. I I couldn't think of a voice that was further from Sam Cooke's than Rod Stewart's scratchy rock voice. And then when I heard this album, I immediately understood exactly why you hear a different version of it. And it reminds me a bit of Rod Stewart here. I should say Rod Stewart reminding me of Sam Cooke. Definitely, I can see that. Another modern singer that that I wanted to bring up earlier, I guess I'll I'll mention him now. One of my my favorite uh, singers of today reminds me a lot of Sam Cooke. I think he was inspired by Sam and he's he's mentioned him as a big influence to his music. We've talked about him a lot. You you know who I'm talking about by chance? I think I know who you're going to say. Leon Bridges. Yep. Yeah, his his latest album deviates a bit from the album that sounds the most like Sam Cooke that that got him real popular. I believe it was titled Coming Home. Yeah, I think that's right. He was kind of touted as a, a modern day Sam Cooke, somebody that was supposed to, you know, be 
be raised in the 60s or 70s just his image and the, the songs the music he was putting out and whatnot people compared him to sam yeah I, i've got that album actually the um coming home i think is, is nice. the name of it that's a good on, one on vinyl myself that's a great album yeah i can see the similarities we didn't really talk about it earlier, but I, I didn't want to get through this whole podcast without mentioning it or at least having a brief discussion. You, you uh, threw out the name Elvis uh, earlier when you were talking about um, the only other person that was more successful than him during mm-hmm. that time period. Yeah, I believe in that. Is that based on that outsold him? Yeah. Record, record sales. Okay. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I, couldn't, I couldn't help but think about Elvis as I was uh, listening to Sam Cooke a lot over the past couple of weeks and then watching some of the documentaries, you know, from, from his sound, the, the, the gospel and Southern influences, you know, Elvis was more rock and roll and he had a little different vibe to his music where, where Sam Cooke has that real soul, but there's a lot of similarities in, in the, where they, where they came from, where they grew up, um, you know, in the South and being influenced by the church and the gospel music. And then I think the biggest comparison that I thought about is that they were both defying the norms and doing something that maybe was a little taboo at the time uh, from Elvis and his gyrating hips and singing about women and doing some racy things at the time for that for that day and age and then also Sam twisting some gospel songs and and breaking away from from that world and, and into the soul music singing about love and women as well and then also catering to a different audience they were they were both in a way taking a leap of faith breaking down barriers and and pushing music uh forward during the same period of time you know i'm not sure how elvis was received by the the black community if he was very popular uh, amongst them if they listened to his music or went to any of his shows similar to the way sam had white people enjoying his music and and going to his concerts but if he had that same kind of mutual respect and breaking down those barriers in a way you know they kind of were pursuing you know different missions different goals but you know there were there were some overlapping themes with kind of what they were doing with their musical careers yeah that would have been an interesting time to live through listening to music and and both of them and it's funny you mentioned elvis with his gyrating hips and (laughs) and uh, the differences and what would have been controversial with a black artist versus a white one during that time just as a funny little side note sam was not much of a dancer in fact somewhere in one of those documentaries i think it was his secretary had mentioned that he had two left feet (laughs) as as beautiful a voice as he had and uh, whatever stereotype you might have of a you know white guy versus a black guy and who you might expect would be the better dancer (laughs) apparently elvis had uh, one on one up on sam cook at least in that department the other thing I, I thought about is that they were both well-dressed guys, you know. Um, well, and, and I guess you could say their their good looks were a huge part of their appeal. Yeah, and just their 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 persona, their demeanor, you know, the, the intelligence and, and ability to, you know, do, do an interview and, and speak to the crowd. You know, they, they both just had this aura about them that uh, it was just something kind of unique. And obviously they both had a big following of of young uh women you mentioned earlier sam getting the the church going population twofold or threefold all these people just wanting <laughs> yeah. to go watch him yeah. somebody in the documentary said something like 
And all these all these women that wouldn't normally be at church started to show up all of a sudden. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then, of course, Elvis uh, obviously had a, a big following. I see a lot of parallels between the two of them and, and you know, some of those uh, aspects. So, you know, like you said, a lot of people were not necessarily inspired by uh, the other people of the time, but there were a lot of people coming up during the same period, whether they were influencing each other or just making their mark on that era. There was a lot of monumental uh, stuff happening around that time period. Yeah, absolutely. It w- would have been really an interesting musical experience to live through that. Obviously, there would have been other not-so-great things course, living yeah. during that time, but right. um, but interesting time musically. Yeah. 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 We'll move on now to, I think, your favorite song at the show. This one's called Chain Gang. Here's a little song right now, ladies and gentlemen, that's designed to make you feel like you. Designed to make you feel good, says... I hear something saying I think this is my my favorite song on the album. It's a good song. Yeah, it's just a lot of fun to sing along, and I like some of the changes in the the music, the way he plays on the words throughout the song, and then the the, the element of the the repeated chant of the O's and Ahs, the 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 sounds of the the chain gang, as if you really heard them. The yeah, the grunting yeah, like they're the, working. Ugh. kind of hear that in the distance you know if you were an observer of this chain gang inspired to write this song when he was seeing a a chain gang of prisoners working along the highway but you can also think about this uh, as it maybe pertains to the days of slavery when they may have been working out in the field or on a railroad or something and been chained together so there's some social issues potentially interlaced through the the lyrics of this song as well so that gives it a little bit more weight i think also i like this one too and you're right this one does have a social commentary aspect to it and i think the story was it was him and his brother that actually were along the highway seeing this chain gang i think the story went that they went and got them cartons of cigarettes because they oh, that's were moved right. by watching yeah, them work i read that yeah. And yeah, I think that it might have messages harking back to slavery times and then also just the injustice in the prison system that, you know, still might have some roots oh, um, even sure. in, in today from yeah. a racial standpoint. And I thought it was interesting in this live version when Sam introduced the song, he says, this is a song designed to make you feel good, which I thought was kind of an interesting lead into a song that might have some social commentary. And then I kind of thought really specifically about those words thinking, well, maybe this was designed to make you feel good because this goes over the head of many people listening, especially maybe white audience listening at the time. This was a feel-good, snap-your-fingers type of song. In that aspect, it really maybe was just designed to make you feel good, even if the underlying message was one that was a little bit more complicated. Yeah, another song that maybe has some some subtle messages 
laced in there that yeah people don't pick up on enough or people who wouldn't have liked that type of message showing up in a song uh, would maybe not pick up on it enough so they're naively singing along and it's making them feel good they don't even realize if they knew the full story they they probably would oppose it or something like that so yeah there's sort of some subliminal messages and maybe uh some trickery going on there what sam was saying like yeah you know it's designed to make you feel good (laughs) but you're also going to be singing along to something that's going to kind of make you think by the end of it too yeah this one passed the record label test yeah something that uh the pop audience would still recognized as a hit song and this one peaked at number two on the billboard hot 100 uh, back in 1960 this was his second biggest hit uh, behind you send me i like the percussion sounds on this around the 140 mark that do sound a little bit like chains yeah that's another cool element to the design of the song There's a little bit more of that in the percussion, I think, in the studio version, as you mm-hmm. might imagine. They can do that a little bit more. Yeah. But the fact that they were able still to do this in the live version was pretty cool. So as I was mentioning earlier, they kind of start out with you know, some, some faster-paced, up, upbeat songs uh, you know, with Don't Fight It, Feel It, and Chain Gang. And then they sort of transition into uh, a love song, romantic uh, period of the night of the show. Uh, with the next two or three tracks. Uh, the one after this um, being one you mentioned earlier as one of your favorites, Cupid. Here's another song that... Maybe you remember this one. Very nice little song, nice and sweet. It says, Cupid, draw back your bow. Yeah, I mentioned Cupid was a song that often found its way into karaoke night for me growing up. It's This is the first song I ever heard of Sam Cooke. So when I think of Sam Cooke and I think of those smooth tenor vocals, this is the song that always comes to mind for me. And this was a part of your wedding? This song made it on at least like a playlist okay. for our wedding. Gotcha. It didn't have a place like in the ceremony itself, but the song was played played at the wedding. Nice. And probably was on a mixed uh, CD for my wife before we got married too at some point. If Sam's sweet voice couldn't make it, uh, I, would, I didn't stand a chance. <laughs> I like the lyrics of this one. I just it's a, it's kind of um, one of those songs you think of as an innocent teenager might sing, you know, appealing to the love of God to to help him out. Yeah, but he he doesn't he doesn't really uh feel too confident about getting this girl though in the song. You know, it says uh, now I don't mean to bother you meaning or addressing Cupid reaching out to Cupid saying, but I'm in distress. There's danger of me losing all of my happiness for I love a girl who doesn't know I exist. And this you can fix. That's right. And now, I don't mean to bother you, but I'm in distress. There's danger of me losing all of my happiness for I love a girl who doesn't know I exist. And this you can fix. So, Cupid, draw back to the road. I guess that maybe there is some hope that Cupid can 
can uh, get this girl to see him by shooting an arrow of his through her heart or some, something along those lines. It's kind of a, a cliche love song or some some lyrics you could see show up on a on a hall, Hallmark uh, Valentine's Day card or something like that. But there is something fun and catchy about the words and it has that feel-good tempo to it. Yeah. And I love the ending on this where he goes from kind of the, that sweet love song to not to do 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 and then the drums kind of end it and he's straight to my lover's heart just a different version than you would have gotten on the studio album yeah yeah that's more that improvisation that i was talking about right, earlier like right. you know I, we think about a jazz concert where people just have solos and they they play off of each other and they kind of go off and do you know some pretty wild things off off the script of the the, the notes and the, and the music or whatever if you think about a, a jam band concert where in the live version of the song it ends up being two or three times the studio length and it's a, a lot of times it's because there's this this jam session where the the stripped down small saxophone part or drum part or bass guitar that made the studio album is only a, a small snippet of what that person could do if they were given the spotlight to just get after it and they had two three minutes to ad lib and, and play along you know in a, in a way this live album shows how sam can do that with his voice and with his commanding of the audience his performance the we talked about the preacher part there's even kind of a, a broadway play musical type performance aspect of him too and that's all the stuff that doesn't really make it onto a studio album whether that's because of the times and his record label wanting him to sound a certain way or you know that's kind of something that happens with all studio music there's uh, a little bit of there's a little bit missing from from the artists or the bands because it has to be condensed into a three to four to five minute song sometimes longer but it has to be polished and you have to trim some of the the fat some of the excess and, and you can't just let the band go on forever or the the artist sing and and goof around and ad lib and, and whatnot but in a live show those are some of the the real genuine moments where you let them go long enough and then the band just really clicks and something special happens or the the artist twists the lyrics or changes something to interact with the crowd whether that's changing the name of the city in the song to be the actual city where they're performing and the crowd goes wild or they they slightly change something to fit the time that's kind of what Sam does a lot with all this improvisation, changing some of the words and talking between the verses of the song. It just enhances everything. And that's sort of his his little extra, his his it factor that we're getting uh, in this live performance that, that you would never pick up on with a studio album. So in a way, like that's us getting to see all of him and, and, and uh, that's Sam without limitations that you know sam without restrictions that's the whole version of him just being up there doing it his way and just having a good time and i think that sometimes you just can't recreate any of this in any other setting it's this crowd in this time it's these reactions it's how he felt in this moment all of these things that maybe just wouldn't make it on a studio album and the crowd is almost another instrument in this oh yeah totally performance and playing off of them and feel you know feeling it himself mm -hmm. 
all of those things together, I think, is what makes this album so compelling. Yeah, I can't believe this thing was sitting on a oh, shelf for 22 years. It makes me wonder, too, as a side note, what else is sitting out there? I mean, this one obviously had reason to be shelved. Uh, you know, I would argue very good reason, of course. But I wonder what's been put on a shelf for whatever reason and forgotten that if it was unearthed and remastered and released would be listed as one of the best you know live albums of all time like this one has 22 years later. oh yeah totally well, we'll move on now to a medley of songs this is just called medley it's all right long as i know honey long as i know that you love me believe me it's all right and if you really want to put the clincher on it tell them this tell them if you ever need me baby if you're all alone remember darling i'm as near as yours I like when he's talking before this song, getting into it, and he says something like, all right, now how about a, a little romance? You guys ready for romance? Everybody in favor of getting a little romantic? Here's the thing we like to right now. Right now, ladies and gentlemen, you know, we sang so many of those, so many fast songs. We've been twisted a little while. So now I think it's time we get sort of settle down and get romantic here a little bit, huh? Is everybody in favor of getting romantic? Hold on. Yeah, you know. It's a really cool combination of a couple of love songs. So we go from Cupid to this medley of It's All Right and For Sentimental Reasons, which yeah, that was what that I had written mark, here. He, yeah, from he goes into that. It's yeah. All Right to for, for Sentimental Reasons. It's a really cool transition, but it's a sweet combination of love songs after following up Cupid. So we have a few in a row here. It's just kind of that slow down chill love section of the night people are dancing fired up at the beginning and then he kind of calms them down and lets them groove for a little bit and just sway to the music you know why it's all right honey it's all right because i love you Any lyrics uh, from this one stand out? It was more just him doing his little ad lib stuff about, here's what you got to do. You got to go wake up your wife, yeah. which I'm yep. sitting there going, well, that's the worst advice ever <laughs> to wake up your wife while she's and then, sleeping. Uh, wait until she wipes all that sleep from her eyes. <laughs> yeah. Whenever they tell you anything about your lady, go home. If she's sleeping, shake her and wake her up. And wait till she wipe all the sleep from her eyes. You understand? And when she get all that sleep wipe from her eyes, look at their night and tell her, baby, it's all. It's, it seems like he's just as much an observer of what he's going to do next as the crowd is here with this stuff. I, yeah. I really don't get the sense that he planned this out. Like, if you saw whatever the next show was, like if he traveled to another town the next night and did mm-hmm. this same show, even if it was in a predominantly black audience, I just feel like he would have said something else you know yeah. this this again was just one moment in time and at one particular yeah, concert that's that in miami that free for all i don't necessarily think he's telling the story about waking up your wife on this medley of songs next time he does it so pretty special i really liked king curtis again on the saxophone on this one on oh man yeah mark yeah and layering that in there was really pretty on this one too Long 
into that live element. I don't know how often he toured with Sam. I mentioned that King Curtis has done music with Aretha Franklin, but uh, I don't know how often he was playing with Sam Cooke, but to have him for this show was pretty special. Yeah, they really play together well. And then the crowd singing along on this one was really cool. I think this was the first mm-hmm. one that they really let the, the crowd shine through. I don't, I don't know if the, yeah. the mic's focused in on it more, but you heard them singing along when Sam was asking them to sing. Then you hear some women screaming in the background, getting excited. But then you hear some chatter, almost like a party, like people just random chatting in the background. Mm-hmm. I think that was really cool. It kind of gave you a feel of being there at the concert, you know, like that. That really captures that live music atmosphere. There were three versions of this album put out there. The I can't remember which years. I mean, probably the first one was 1985, I guess. And I and I think the crowd was really loud in that one. The description of that version was it was almost like claustrophobic because mm. you heard the the crowd more. And then they did another remastering of it that toned them down quite a bit. And then the mo- this most recent one, this is a, this is a 2005, I believe, remaster that we're listening to here. Kind of splits the difference between those two. So you're still hearing the crowd, but you're still getting a little bit more of Sam. So they kind of felt like this was the best combination. Oh, okay, that makes sense because I saw a couple album covers that didn't say "One Night Stand" on them. So maybe that was added to this latest one. I think a couple of them just said "Sam Cooke Live at the Harlem Square." But this one had added One Night Stand on there as kind of a a subtitle or something. Okay. You mentioned the crowd singing on the outro of this one around that 350 Marta. He's guiding them into that call and response. I think of you every morning. And then they say, I think of you every morning. Yeah. Yeah. And I dream of you every night. I dream you sound of me. And I almost feel like at that part they're like swaying. Like you can see people kind of like arms around each other, swaying back and forth during that part. Yeah, those are sweet lyrics. A lot of his songs are pretty, pretty simple. But it's his it's his delivery and his sound that is so warm and engaging that it it makes the song feel a lot more powerful, you know, than if you or I were performing, <laughs> yeah, know, the song with those lyrics. I mean, it, it's not extremely profound in the, the the message or the words, but the way he delivers it is, you know, it takes it up two or three more notches. I have a question for you, Shane. Okay, shoot. Do you feel like you want to twist a little while here? Oh yeah, I feel like twisting the night away. You feel like you want to twist a little while now, huh? I said, do you feel like you want to twist a little while? All right, let's go. Come on, a two, a put it anywhere. Oh man, they have a lot of fun. They put trouble on the 
I think this song was strategically placed in the middle of the night to get people up and going for that second half of the show. It's exciting from the jump, and then he gets everybody to relax a little bit with the love songs, and then, all right, everybody, you know, ready to, ready to twist, ready to dance, and, you know, this song comes in, and right away the band is playing fast, and, you know, I don't care who you are, you know, if this song comes on, even if you're not somebody who really likes to dance or feels real comfortable dancing, some part of you is going to start moving. You're either going to tap your foot or grooving and bobbing your head or something. You just can't listen to this song without feeling the urge to start moving and shaking and doing something some way or another. It just has that dance feel to it, you know, and I just, I picture the whole crowd just, you know, jumping and jiving and twisting and shouting and, and moving around and just smiling and having such a great time. This was my favorite one on the live album. It's not my favorite of Sam Cooke's songs. It's not even my favorite of the songs that are played here, but when you put them all live, this was my favorite one. I mean, it's a live album, and this song's called Twist in the Night Away. So to have a live album that in the title talks about dancing and hearing the people dance, there was just something about those two elements together and the energy that's put in this one. So I enjoyed listening to this song the most on this album. Yeah, and you can tell Sam's really feeling it too. He's just got a lot of energies feeding off the crowd. You know, interestingly, I, I have heard this song so many times, and I, I didn't realize uh, it was a Sam Cooke song uh, when I was listening to this live album and that started playing. I'm like, oh, I know this song. I've heard this. And I was like, oh, I wonder who did it first. I thought it was a cover. And they come to find out it was his song. But this is a song that was remade and covered by so many people over the years. And the twist was a common dance back then. It's not just asking people to move in a non-specific way. Twist in the Night Away is, is a particular dance. And one of the artists that went on to cover the song or even sort of twist it a little <laughs> bit and make it his own was Chubby Checker, who right, actually, yeah. that in and of itself, Let's do I the found twist. out as we were texting right. back and forth was not even his song. There, someone else wrote a song called The Twist. Chubby Checker's the one that made it famous, but you can hear Sam Cooke do Chubby Checker's version at around the 250 mark, where he breaks into the, come on, baby, let's do the twist. Oh, yeah, he does. Within his version of Twist the Night Away. So mm-hmm. he kind of combines those two things, too. To come on, baby. Ha. Let's do that twist. Listen to me. Come on, baby. Look at here, let's do that switch. Yeah, let me take you by your hand. And then go like this. Yeah, right, that is a cool part. As a funny side note, I've seen Chubby Checker live play this song. No way. Yeah. Cool. And of course, we were texting leading up to doing this recording. My favorite part of my favorite song on this album is at that 335 mark when Sam starts asking the audience to take that handkerchief around <laughs> spin that handkerchief around round and round everybody's got a handkerchief if you got a handkerchief take it around take that handkerchief around take the handkerchief around that's it take the handkerchief around ha! take the handkerchief around everybody get them out that part really feels improv and that part gives me the most visual of this night to me of everybody doing that. I feel like they're walking around the tables, swinging these things around. Mm-hmm. It just sounds like so much fun. Yeah, I, I pictured that too. And, 
you know, we were talking earlier, you mentioned that these stories and, and uh, little conversations that he has with the crowd between the verses and between songs probably change from night to night. I wonder if he just happened to see somebody in the crowd, you know, twirling their handkerchief and he's like, yeah, that's right. You know, twirl them handkerchiefs. Yeah. No, y'all got yeah, them. Everybody, yeah. everybody get them out yeah. and, you know, join in just something he saw and just on the fly inter- interlace it into the song. That was a pretty special moment. Another one of those times where you don't get that with a, a studio album. You don't, you don't hear the, the performance. You don't get any, you know, moments like that. Yeah. But you, you do in a live album and you, and you do obviously when you're at a concert and you see some of those things no no song from a studio album that you heard is going to be identical there's always going to be some some minor changes to it and uh, that's what kind of makes a live album or a concert pretty cool because it's that it's that raw you know unpolished sound that you get from the performance aspect one last little interesting note on this song at the 56 mark there's a skip in the recording that isn't there in the earlier versions of this that i mentioned where Mm. the crowd is louder or the crowd is much quieter it's in this most recent remaster and nobody really knows why it's there as far as i could read nobody's nobody's really sure why that is and i like i like this part too here's a man in evening clothes how he got here i don't know but man you ought to see him go twisting the night away let me tell you about him Here's a man in evening clothes How we got here I don't know But all I see him go Swishing It's kind of cool like this business guy Got off work and he was supposed to go Go home to his wife and kids And somehow he wandered into this club And he heard the music or something Like he, he didn't know where he was at And even the performers are surprised that he's there That, that That's kind of cool to, to think about that First of all you know, like somebody just getting off work and then ending up at this concert. But then the next line is dancing with a chick in slacks. She's moving up and back. I don't know if it was politically correct to refer to a woman as a chick back then. Like, I don't know. It probably isn't today really either if you ask a lot of people, but it's probably better then than now. Yeah. yeah I mean, yeah. it seems like modern hip language for the time. Like I didn't think they would refer to people as chicks back in the 60s. I thought it was like guys and gals and yeah ladies and gentlemen and stuff like that so to say you know here's this guy in slacks i presume some business guy and he's got this chicken slacks and she's moving up and back and it's like this prude you know reserved business guy shows up and even he's twisting the night away he feels the music and he <laughs> can't resist and here's this girl just going up and down and they're they're having this good old time twisting the night away like two people that you wouldn't expect to be interacting but everybody's loving the music and having a good time and feeling it that it doesn't really matter who you are black white business person lower class anybody and everybody who's there would be twisting the night away because the music is that powerful after a couple more upbeat songs, he slows it down at the end of this one, goes into kind of those preacher vibes again as he's talking to the audience, and he leads into the next song, which is Somebody Have Mercy. This is where we would be flipping the record if you own this one on vinyl, by the way. But because this is a performance and one song really leads into the next, the end of Twist in the Night Away 
leads right into Somebody Have Mercy. And this is where the album on a vinyl format wouldn't convey that quite as well as the digital does. But nonetheless, we'll flip the record over here anyway. And the next song is Somebody Have Mercy. And fellas, that make me feel good, just put it right back. Somebody have mercy, tell me what is wrong with me. Oh, help me right now. Ha! Somebody have mercy, baby. I wanna know what is wrong with me. Oh, yeah. Sometimes I don't know how I stand. The thing that woman do to me. This is another great song and, and another one that I think showcases King Curtis so well at that 125 mark on the saxophone. Oh yeah, the, the saxophone solos are awesome on this one. Another one again where he kind of gets into that preacher mode by the end. It slows down at that 350 mark, and he's talking to the operator. He's trying to get his lady on the phone, and he's he's talking to the operator instead. And, and the band does such a good job at this part of just slowing down. And I swear they're just kind of responding to the energy that Sam is pushing forth and drawing back. And you hear June Gardner on the drums just kind of keeping pace with Sam as he's going into this little story about calling the his girl and the operator. Oh, but I get the feeling So all alone And I call my baby On the telephone I finally get somebody on the telephone And I say, who is this? Somebody said, this is the operator I said, I don't want you, operator I want my baby I thought this one had kind of a, a swing dance feel to it in, in a little bit of a way. Maybe it was the drums, like the the dun 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 dun. dun. Mm-hmm. Kind of, I I know it was yeah, a it slower song, yeah. but it no kind of felt yeah. like you could just be slow swing into it. And he's just got the crowd just eaten out of his hands on this one oh, too. Oh man, yeah. He says hello, operator, at that five fifteen, and then there's some man at the in the background that just goes, just yells hello after him. <laughs> you can hear that. And soon in the minute I hear my baby say hello, something start to move. I wonder how big the place was. That's something we hadn't That's talked a really about. Really good question. Yeah, I don't know how, how many, many people, people were there. Are there. Yeah. Yeah. I get the sense that it was maybe not an underground club, but kind of a, a smaller, private, off the beaten trail, select kind of crowd that got in there or something, maybe. Less than 100 people. Yeah, I, I imagine that they didn't have large venues available to them. I doubt it. I doubt they were building large venues for an audience like this, so... I think it was a lot more intimate, and I bet there's a few hundred people here. That would be my yeah, guess. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, it definitely has that feel that it's in a, a small place, and everybody is, is close and connected to the music and able to interact, you know, from him picking up on the crowd and the energy and just feeding off of them to 
the way they do some of the refrains and echoes you know it just it all seems very attached mm-hmm. the band and, and the and the audience for, and for that to happen they all have to be fairly close and seeing and and hearing and not missing a beat i think it was that that's that's what i yeah. that's the vibe i'm getting and that makes sense logically to me given that it was a prominently black neighborhood i just doubt they'd had large venues i looked up the a harlem club and i couldn't i couldn't find anything in miami did you yeah okay. i thought yeah. maybe it would yeah. be something that would have potentially been preserved over the years or kept as a historical place but then again if this album wasn't released for 22 years I mean, only a select few of people would have known, hey, there's this live album sitting out here that's been produced that happened in this place that has a lot of historical significance, but it was never released to anybody who had the authority to preserve the building if there was still a club, say, in in the 70s or something. Maybe it's been turned into something else, but it would would be cool if we could find a way to to trace back and see if that building still exists just to, to step foot in there if you were ever to travel to Miami to try to find that place and step foot and just listen to the music while you're standing in there and just think about where the stage might have been and where people would have been and I don't get a feel for it if it's anything like what it was back then but I don't know it's been how many years now 60 years ago might not even be there. Yeah I'm just looking up Harlem Square Club and really the only thing that is popping up is is Sam Cooke. In fact Mm -hmm. I think this might be it here I don't know if you can see this or not. Oh yeah pretty run down okay. at this point i don't it's not fun you know i don't think it doesn't look like it's functioning anymore wow so i think it was pretty small yeah it almost looks yeah. like a little church yeah and then at the 550 mark he goes into his biggest hit of his career in you send me obviously he does it in a very different way here and he doesn't sing the full song but a little nod to his big hit now, at the I end of this one for you, honey. i want to say that darling you Yeah, thanks for playing that. I think that was that was one of the moments where you really felt the soul come through, you know, in his voice. Yeah. Really powerful. Just not holding back at all. He laughs at yeah. that part too. And just the 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 vibrato and holding those notes. Yeah. So then after that little soulful rendition of You Send Me that Sam throws into the concert at the end of uh, the last track, Somebody Have Mercy, he transitions into a really long lead up uh, to the next song and he, he improvises for quite a while there and, and really continues that that really deep soul uh, sound and feel as he begins to bring it on home. I want you to listen to this song right here for me. Got to tell you I feel right now. This song gonna tell you I feel few songs on this album where he's kind of talking about forgiving a woman for stepping out on him or leaving him whether it's in the song itself or in his little ad libs and this is one that the whole thing's about that where he's kind of saying even though you left 
if you turn it right around, bring it right back home, we can pick up where we left off. And uh, this is another just really fun one, and that gets the audience really going in there. I, I like this one. This is one I wasn't really familiar with, I don't think, prior to this one. I got to go back and listen to the studio version. I just can't imagine it brings it like this one does. The biggest uh, difference for me with this one versus the studio album, and when I, when I heard this live version, I immediately felt like there was something missing, and that was because there wasn't the echoes on the the yeah that that Lou Rawls. Oh, does. that's so right. The studio yeah. version, it's it's that's really right. pronounced. That's it's, right. You know, Sam goes yeah, and then it's yeah. Yeah, you know. That's right. I do Lou know the studio. Lou is always like right. overpowering yeah. with the the yaz in the background, the echo. So that part is kind of cool, and that is uh, a nod to. The original gospel song uh, that this was based on, which was a, a 1959 track titled I Want to Go Home by Charles Brown and Amos Milburn that had a, a, a gospel flavor to it and a call and response in the vocals. So, you know, although Sam often uh, gets credit for being the sole writer of this song, it was in a way a, a spinoff of a, a song that already existed that had that uh, call and response or echo to it as well. So that was a big reason why he and Lou included that or where they were inspired to to do the yeah, yeah, and just go back and forth with those uh, throughout the song. So that was something that was different with the live version because Sam just kind of, instead of him saying yeah and then having an echo, he would say yeah in a couple different ways if you, if you caught up on that. This is a, another song where really asks for the audience's attention in, in a couple of different parts. Like uh, he mm-hmm. says, now, now listen to me right here. This next part, this next part is very important. And then he goes into the line, you know, I'll always be your slave till I'm buried, buried in my grave. And then he kind of laughs, mm. you know, ha ha yeah. or something like that. Listen to me. Don't you know that I'll always, I'll always be your slave. <laughs> till I'm I thought those lyrics had an interesting way to it. I think in the context of the pop song that it's written, at least the way that the record label wanted it to be conveyed amidst the rest of the lyrics about, you know, the, his love for this woman that had left him and he wants back. That's what I think he's saying. He said, I'll be, I'll be a sure, slave okay. to you. I, you know, I'll always love you forever till I die. So I think that's the message that on the surface, that's what it's supposed to be. And I don't I know I if it's supposed the, to be a deeper meaning or not. Song, the lyrics behind it. Yeah. I was yeah. thinking more of the, the, but it the did political come... aspect of that since he kind of laughs it off afterwards. It's almost like... Well, it stood out to me in the context of everything that he had gone through too because it, it does seem kind of like a foreshadowing a bit. It's almost two years later that he's killed, even though it's only one calendar year because this is the beginning of 63 and he was killed at the end of 64. But nonetheless, it's coming up mm-hmm. uh, and he doesn't yeah. know that. So just some macabre foreshadowing here of this one a little. Yeah, good point. Wow. There's a couple songs left in the show. Next one is called Nothing Can Change the Love I Have for You. And I want you to know that if I go a million miles away, I'd 
Also one that talks about his love for somebody in a little different way. We, we had that trio of love songs earlier and then picked up the pace a bit with Twisting the Night Away. And then a couple songs here, back to back now, are, are love songs. But as you mentioned in the last one, he talks about if his lover wants to step out and go see somebody else or, or do her own thing or whatever. I can't remember exactly how it's worded, but as long as she comes home to him and you bring it on home to me, then I'll be here for you and everything will be fine. He kind of alludes to that same idea in this song as well. Well, firstly, he says, you know, if I, I go a million miles away, I'd write a letter each and every day because, honey, nothing nothing can ever change this love I have for you. So there he's saying, you know, if I have to go away, if I'm uh, away, um, it doesn't matter how much time goes or the distance between us all right whenever we're together things will be fine but then it's almost like he gives his his lover another free pass if you will uh in the lyrics but if you wanted to leave me and roam when you got back baby i'd just say welcome home you know with that recurring theme I, that as long as they come back he'll be waiting for him you know sometimes you you kind of give somebody the the privilege of going to do something that you yourself maybe want to do as well. So I kind of got to thinking and knowing the story and, and some of it is just based on documentary and, and secondhand stuff that I've read and seen. But it sounded like, you know, after the, the passing of his son, he maybe got into the party scene a little bit more and was kind of wrapped up in his music. And there's rumors of him being a bit of a womanizer and, and, and stepping out and, and uh, you know, having a good time and enjoying the the persona of being a a star and, and an important figure and so perhaps you know he went out and and did some things but in the back of his mind or deep down he knew that whoever he was with his lover was the one that he would always want to come back to and that nothing could really break that and so in a way I thought maybe the song is saying you know if you do that then I'll be fine I'll I'll still be here for you and maybe in a way it's like a subtle way of saying i hope i hope you know you you view me the same way that if i were to leave in rome and whatnot that when i come back hopefully you still say welcome home and nothing can break our bond it could be yeah sometimes we talk about giving somebody else a pass in the hopes that they'd be given us one for our same transgressions i i could see that it, whether consciously or unconsciously written into this on a, on a much less deep note than, than yours on this one, I, I just really liked the way he says, your cake and ice cream. Give me that milk bar one more time. Oh, you're the apple of my eye. Listen to me. You're chilling high. Can't you understand you? Your cake and ice cream. Oh, you like the sugar and spice. And everything nice. Just because uh, it doesn't really fit the meter of the song, uh, but it stands yeah. out so much. Uh, can you do that again and add like a like a whoa 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 after it or something? Your cake and ice cream, ha, yeah ha. yeah, sugar and spice. 
And we would have never I made it as soul soulsters soulsters <laughs> we would have never made the soul stirs something about being raised in a gospel church i think that instills that that big sound and that confidence and vibrato of just letting it all go the holy spirit man yeah it's <laughs> it's tough to teach that you just got to feel it you got to feel it that's right can't fight it <laughs> We'll move on to the last song on the album and a fitting way to end what sounds like a really fun night. We're having a party. At the end of the night, Sam Cooke's voice is even raspier than it started. If it was unrecognizable from his pop image from the beginning, it's obliterated at this point. Clearly, the audience has not lost any energy at all because they're still singing back and forth with Sam. I swear they're louder by the end than they were at the beginning. I don't know what time of night it is at this point, but they are having a party till the very end. Oh yeah, this this is an awesome way to end the album. Good song choice, obviously. And for them to still have that kind of energy and and be singing along and and loving it. It was really cool to to hear the refrain led by Sam. He was kind of giving them their line, you know, he was he was saying it before it was time to actually say it with the music and then the crowd would sing and and they'd go back and forth. That was that was really cool. I wonder if there were quite a few more performers that night, now that I think about it. This album, from start to finish, from the intro to, to the end, if you call if you call the intro a track, there's there's ten tracks on this album. It's only thirty six minutes long. So that wouldn't have been the full night. Maybe Sam was the the headliner, but there could have been people before him, or maybe some after. I tried to look up who it was that introduced Sam on this album, and I imagine it was just maybe the owner of the club. He does almost allude to there being something before. He says, the star of our show, the young man you've all been waiting for. So it does make me wonder if there was something leading up to Sam's performance. Yeah, I was just thinking about that when you, you were saying you wondered what time of night it was at that point. Yeah. Yeah, my, my guess is there were multiple performers or groups and possibly Sam was, was the headliner. I imagine that's probably the case. I, I really like how they ended with this song to end the night and, and the album and and that when they remastered this version they kept the crowd vocals fairly loud i mean i know you said it it sounds like they're louder here and maybe they are but if there were other versions too where the crowd was overpowering in some songs and then another one where it was kind of soft this one they decided that was an integral part of the song and uh, part of the part of the evening because when they're doing that outro at the end that that's really cool they just keep going back and forth and it's almost like they want more and they haven't had enough and then Sam's recognizing it too and I really like where he says nah I don't I don't want to quit I don't want to I know I don't want to go but I but I gotta go and (laughs) and then he says but but y'all can keep having your party and 
You know, wherever you're at, wherever you go, just remember, I want you to keep on having that party and have that party. He just he starts going on and on. I gotta go. But when you go home, you won't have that party. No matter why you're at, remember I told you to keep on having that party. If you went to love one somewhere, keep on having that party. If you feel good, I'm alone, ride in the radio sometime. Ride in the car and the radio's on. Keep on having that party. Take a little of this with you wherever you go. Feel the energy. Don't yeah. Don't fight it. Feel yeah. it and and keep it alive. Keep it going. Yeah. What a, what a night though. How how cool how cool would it be to have a time machine and go back to those you know those days and find a way into this nightclub, see the atmosphere and witness Sam Cooke live. I mean, what a what a special thing that would be. I mean, there's not too many people in the grand scheme of things that got to to witness. Sam Cook live and unfortunately you know he was only touring well I don't know his solo career was eight years long I don't know how long he was touring of that I don't know um you know it took a while before there was enough money probably to be to be traveling and touring and and have that kind of success so I don't know maybe a handful of years and I don't know what kind of ground he covered and and with with the times with you know some of the barriers with segregation and civil rights movement you know there were probably lots of people that never got to to see Sam because of his, his limited career. And then obviously, you know, his life was cut way too short at the, at the age of 33. So, you know, if you were one that got to witness uh, Sam Cooke live, if you happen to be somebody who was at the Harlem Square Club that night in 1963, and you, you get to listen to this album and, and relive it uh, nowadays, you know, those people would probably be in their 80s yep. to you know, to have lived through that time and, and to be a part of that. How how cool, especially because there just weren't weren't too many opportunities uh, because his his life was unfortunately abbreviated. And although he was extremely successful and had so many hits and released so many albums within such a short period of time and was really influential, the King of Soul and, and influenced so many people and has, has left his mark, we never really saw him reach his full potential and see his life play out um, you know the way it should have so very unfortunate ending to his story with a lot of uncertainty surrounding it as well do you want to get into that a little bit yeah well as i mentioned to begin this episode the the details around his death are complicated we mentioned that this album took place in january of 1963 it was december of 1964 that sam was killed and what we know for sure is he sustained a gunshot wound to the chest after a struggle with a hotel manager in south central la Uh, The record states that at the Hacienda Hotel, the manager Bertha Franklin acted in self-defense as Cook forced his way into her locked office in search of a woman that he had brought to the hotel earlier that night who had fled the hotel room. 
Cook was frantic, and at the time he was wearing only a sport coat and a single shoe when police came upon his body in Franklin's office. Yeah, as the story goes, the lady that he was with at the hotel ran off with all of her stuff. She claims that he was forcing himself upon her, that he brought her back to the hotel against her will. She wanted to get out of there, grabbed her stuff, ran off, and in the process of grabbing her stuff, grabbed his pants as well, and took off, ran to a phone booth, called the cops to report what had happened while Sam was running off looking for her, going to the office at the hotel to talk to the manager, thinking that maybe she knew where this lady had ran off to. Whether he was wanting to talk to her because of unfinished business or whatever they had going on together that night, or perhaps that had something to do with the fact that she ran off with his pants and According to some people, Sam had been flashing a a huge wad of cash. One person on the documentary that I watched had mentioned it was probably around five grand that might have been in his pants pocket and that, you know, instead of accidentally grabbing them, maybe that is why she ran off to take his money, uh, which is one of the theories that's been thrown around. Right. Yeah, that woman was 22-year-old Alyssa Boyer that Cook had met at a local bar called Martoni's earlier that evening. And just like you said, back to the hotel room, whether she was a willing participant in being there or not is nobody's going to know that for sure, except for Alyssa Boyer, um, who I guess is still alive at this point, though I had read that she doesn't really have all her faculties and what she was able to say. She sticks to her story that she said on the witness stand of him attempting to rape her or she feared that he would and that she ran off like you said with his pants. I think she said she feared that that was what he had in mind but I I think the only details that she gave was that he stripped her clothes off and threw her on the bed and was kind of making a pass at her but then she asked if she could go to the bathroom to which he he let her go and then that's when she grabbed her clothes and made a run for it. Yeah, well, then he went to oh, was the bathroom. Oh, that, was that it? And then when he was in the bathroom, yeah, so you're right. First she went to the bathroom, and by her account, she tried to pry open the window, but it was painted shut. She came back, he went to the bathroom, and that's when she ran off with his, inadvertently his clothes, um, trying to grab hers and, and flee. And what we do know is that Sam Cook did have a blood alcohol level twice the legal limit, and the hinges of the hotel manager's booth were broken off, so something or someone did break into her office. So perhaps the influence of the alcohol and whatever transpired between Sam and the lady that he brought up to his room earlier in the night led to the aggressive behavior of breaking down the door and uh, approaching the, the manager with anger or frustration or something to get her worked up to the point of fearing for her life or, or feeling that she needed to defend herself in some way or another. People who, who knew Sam well said that was totally out of character of him and, and something they could never imagine him doing, that he wasn't somebody to force himself onto women, that that story didn't really add up, that he wasn't somebody to act out and be violent or attack somebody and be belligerent, which leaves open the door that possibly... Uh, there were some details of, of the night that maybe were left out, uh, whether intentionally because of some conspiracy to get rid of Sam because he was becoming 
not so much too popular with his musical career, but potentially to some people too powerful, too influential, that they were starting to to worry about his rise in the, the political ranks and, and what he, among others, collectively would be able to do together that was maybe threatening to some people that would have devised some type of scheme to murder Sam in order to eliminate some of those fears that they had. So that's one theory out there that some people think may have happened. That's right, and some people had speculated that it was his manager, Alan Klein, that I had mentioned earlier that might have had a role in his death. He owned the rights to Cook's recordings. Um, What looked like helping Sam out in terms of getting as much money as he was owed from the larger record companies also had some hidden underwriting on the contracts by Klein that slowly wrote Sam Cooke out of a lot of those earnings and funneled them to him. He did make Sam Cooke a lot of money, but he also took a large chunk for himself. After Alan Klein's involvement with Sam Cooke, both the Beatles and the Rolling Stones would seek out Alan Klein's help to represent them, though both groups would eventually go on record saying that Klein had used them as well. There is no concrete evidence of conspiracy theory at this time presented with Alan Klein or anybody else that might have wanted to murder Sam Cooke, but because, like you said, it was so out of character to the people that knew him and so many people that were against him in terms of him bringing black and white culture together with his music and his views, thought that maybe this there could have been something more sinister lurking behind this. A couple other details of his murder that do correspond with what the original story was. Both Bertha Franklin and Alyssa Boyer took polygraph tests and tested, and their stories were the same. There was also a hotel owner on the phone with hotel manager Bertha Franklin at the time of the struggle, and she reported overhearing Sam Cooke on the other end of the phone as he was breaking in and hearing the gunshots as well. So there's a couple other witnesses to this, at least at the time, that seemed to corroborate the story. Yeah, I found that really interesting that all they did was give them a polygraph test and they passed. So they made a verdict, called it a justifiable homicide, closed the case, and moved on without any further speculation. Yeah, it was all done within five days. It certainly didn't... There wasn't a lot of investigation. And nowadays you can't even use polygraphs. You can't use lie detector tests. It's not uh, admissible as evidence in court because Mm. they're so unreliable and so inaccurate. Oh, another detail that I left off is that Alyssa Boyer did come to light that she was a prostitute. There was also some rumors that the hotel manager was connected with the mob and that Mm -hmm. she may have been... A pimpstress was the term they they gave for it, which I I guess is a female pimp. So possibly one theory could be they knew Sam had all that money on him that night and that was their ploy to get his money, although they wouldn't have to kill him in that case and they wouldn't know that he would go to the the manager's office and break down the door, although that could be all a cover-up story for what actually happened. I think the most likely scenario is is that she wanted to take his money. I mean, especially if she was a prostitute and he had money, 
he didn't have to rape her. She either liked him or she didn't like him, but she was a prostitute, so he could have paid her. And also, like, if he was about to rape her and he went into the bathroom, you know, that just seems like a strange time for her to run away. You know, like how convenient that he's like, okay, you stay there. I'm going to, in a, in a second, I'm going to come back and rape you. Yeah, you know? it doesn't really add up. Like, if she was threatened by him, but then he gave her the ability to run away, that just doesn't seem like it jives. And, and like, it's just such a coincidence that she picked up his clothes on the way out. You could see it potentially happening, but I don't know. I To me, it just seems like she saw he had money. She thought maybe she could grab it, and then the rest of it happened the way it happened. Was there any uh, evidence that he was being aggressive toward the prostitute? Only her I, I, I mean, was account. she was she bruised or thrown around or any physical marks no, or anything like that? Like so that. she was scared that he might do something if he was drunk and acting belligerent or something. Maybe she just wanted to get out of that situation, which makes sense. Maybe maybe there's something to that. Maybe they were having a wild, frisky night and things were escalating and she got up there and realized that, you know, she didn't want to be there, which could have happened. And maybe she just decided to run off. I, I'm yeah. sure she could have accidentally grabbed the pants or maybe she said, hey, while, while I'm at it, I'm going to take some money too and, and run off. But then for her to go to a phone booth and and call the cops and talk about how, you know, she had been a, a victim or targeted and taken against her will, kidnapped, I think she might even use the word kidnapped. She didn't have she to did. go to that length. She could have just ran off and never seen the guy again if they hadn't exchanged information. Just go back where you came from. If you're from the area, he's just in town. He's got money. He's going to forget about it and move on. Why do you go to a phone booth and call the cops and make a big stink about it and point point yourself out? You know, if you just stole five grand from this guy, just get out of there. That's a really good point, actually. Yeah, maybe it, it, it all happened the way, you know, it, it sounded like it did, and it just was not a good night for Sam Cooke, whether he was actually going to rape her or not, if she if that's what she felt, you know. But it, it, would, be, it would be kind of a strange setup for them to say, okay, now you're going to go up there with him and then kind of make a scene, have a scuffle, run off with the money, and make him upset enough that he's going to come break down the hotel door and and then it'll give me a chance to shoot him in self-defense or something like you don't know how he's going to react so that's just kind of that'd be kind of weird if it was just a setup between the two of them so there had to be other people involved if it actually was a setup and somebody went in there and murdered sam in cold blood and then they made up this story and beat the door down and and made it look like a struggle and set up all this stuff before the cops got there and placed him in certain places and cleaned things up i mean back then they didn't have the type of forensic science that they do today they didn't have the technology to you know piece things together and and do all that stuff I mean, we're talking 60 years ago so and the fact that even though sam was a a prominent figure a a musician a star i mean unfortunately at the end of the day he was still a a black man in a community dominated by white people in power cops political figures people that although they may have listened to his music and respected him as a musician and maybe even thought that he was a decent person, they're still not going to look at him the same way as they would look at other people. I think Muhammad Ali said it best, you know, had had Sam Cooke been Frank Sinatra and that same exact thing happened, the FBI would be involved, it'd be a huge investigation. But in this case, they had two women corroborating a story. They both passed polygraphs and they said, all right, I guess everything adds up. It is what it is, and we'll just close the case and move on, not thinking about the potential 
other motives, other people who may have been an enemy to Sam, even if Sam didn't know it, people who were threatened by him, whether that you know was the mob or a racial group or some political power that wanted to get rid of him because he was he was becoming too big. Or perhaps yeah. his manager, Alan Klein, as, as you mentioned, got word that Sam had figured out the contract wasn't all that Alan had, had made it out to be. That when he read the fine print, he saw through and realized that Alan had actually made himself the owner, which made Sam an employee. And he wasn't okay with that. And he had expressed to some people that I think a couple of days later that weekend, he had planned on going out to New York uh, to make some changes, one being um, potentially firing Alan. Mm-hmm. And maybe somehow Alan heard that through the grapevine and and uh, whether he himself went there to do something or hired the mob or hired some you know, group of people in the LA area to, to track him down and devise a scheme. I mean, he had, he had tons of money, so he could have made something like that happen if he was getting kind of worried. So that's another theory out there. It is. Unfortunately, we will never know for sure. Yeah, well, whatever happened, obviously very tragic situation. You know, there's a lot of musicians, stars who died too soon, died before their time, never really got to see their true potential. But this feels this feels different. You know, there's plenty of stories of the musician who overdoses in their 20s and we we don't get to see their their life play out or other celebrities, other influential people, or on a, on a on a smaller scale, people in our own lives uh, that maybe would have gone on to do big things, whether that be friends or family. But you know, in in Sam's limited time here, he became an icon. He, you know, he became the king of soul. He, he inspired so many people. He he broke through barriers. He wasn't afraid of people pressuring him to to be somebody he didn't want to be he wasn't going to allow people to deter him from from his path he he was willing to take risks and stand up for what was right for what he he believed in because he he truly thought that that a change was going to come and he wanted to be a big part of that movement in whatever way he could whether it be through the music or if that was a a catalyst to springboard him to potentially a political role he had everything. He had all the parts. He had the the intelligence. He had the the looks, the charisma, the ability to to connect with with people of all races, uh, backgrounds, ages, etc. You know, he was in the early stages of potentially building a lot of steam and becoming powerful and influential to the point that he would have been able to to move mountains and break through barriers and and have an, an even greater impact than he did uh, on on a social level. And then, of course, he would have continued to produce a ton of great music so we missed out on two three four more decades of sam cook songs and, and and who knows i mean he did so much in in a in a very short period of time but it was only a fraction of of what should have been what could have been yeah it is too bad but i'm so glad that we have the music that we did get from him and i'm so glad that we got to tackle this album this is one that i've been talking about for such a long time so this was a really fun one to do yeah, I really enjoyed the experience of getting to know Sam Cooke through the readings and and the Netflix documentary and and uh, listening to this album, you know, reminiscing on some some classic songs, not not only from this live album but also some of his others going back and 
and going through some of those and and discovering that there were some songs that I've known for years that I didn't realize were were Sam's songs, uh, some songs that have been remade by uh, people that I that I admire, some artists that I've followed over the years. That was pretty cool to gain some some awareness uh, to his his influence on music and the life that he lived. You know, this this one felt like more than dissecting an album and focusing on lyrics and and trying to deconstruct uh this this piece of work like like we normally do i mean this was more about connecting to a, a musical figure a historical a person that you know every, everybody should know the story everybody should know about sam cook not only what he did for the the world of music but also also what he what he stood for what he believed in and you know the man that he was it was a fun project to to get to learn about his story and and listen to the music at the same time and and enjoy the the energy the creativity you know just the general vibe that Sam Cooke you know possessed his his presence was pretty awesome and and you definitely hear it in this live album i think this is one that i'll probably go back to uh from time to time if i you know just want to be able to to you know increase the the positive energy of the room or have something kind of uplifting and fun put a smile on my face uh, this is an album I know I can always grab, and it'll do that. This is one that's been doing that for me for several years, so I'm glad we got to finally sit down and talk about it. Often called one of the best live albums ever. Again, I think a essential picture of who Sam Cooke was that is incomplete without this album released 20-plus years after his death. Well, we'll move from 1963 all the way back to 2022 for the next one. It'll be the largest span of years between one episode to the next that we've had yeah, thus wow. far. Almost 60 years. Yeah. But until then, everybody, go listen to a great album. What he said. Do it. If you're enjoying listening to Album Divers, you can support our podcast by subscribing, reviewing, and sharing it with someone else that appreciates great music. Follow and connect with us on Facebook and Instagram at Album Divers. We'd love to hear your thoughts and feedback about our take on an album that you already loved or had never heard before. Do you have an album you want us to dive into? Email us at albumdiverspodcast at gmail.com and we'll consider adding it to our queue for a future episode. Thanks again for joining us. We hope you never stop discovering music that moves you to dive deeper. Until next time. <laughs>